0: Well, the leadership enigma continues to be on a journey. I've kept on saying that we are passionate about human-centered leadership and that we're investigating the human being over the human doing. And this episode is inspiring. This episode is with an amazing CEO. An amazing CEO who is going to be courageous, vulnerable, and inspiring. And that is Tim Krezik from Vorbos. And he will tell you the story of how he has battled and become successful, but at what price. And he will talk about the challenge and the loneliness and the mental health and the grit and the determination and his focus on never stopping. But above all else, he'll talk about how he has had to really be human centered and kind to himself because he's always looking at how he can provide value to other people and make sure that those around him are safe and secure, but at what cost? So the leadership enigma now is enjoying its ability to have unbelievable conversations with incredibly successful people, that's the human doing, but delve into the human being, the vulnerability, the courage, the inspiration behind the human being. Enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Adam Pacifico and welcome to The Leadership Enigma, a world-ranked, award-winning podcast that's insatiably curious as regards what leaders do, how they do it, and importantly, why. We'll delve into the human doing, but even deeper into the human being and the power of human-centered leadership to drive sustainable change. So whether you're an entrepreneur, business owner, corporate executive, each week we speak to global experts, academics, rising stars, ambitious upstarts and disruptors, as together we will discover that success leaves clues Tim, it's great to see you here on the leadership enigma thanks for how having are me. you
1: very good thank you
0: we were just chatting before we actually went live and uh, i've got to ask you uh, any thoughts on the new studio
1: no i love it it's good
0: <laughs> i've got to ask because it's only been up and running for a, a number of weeks or yeah, indeed I'm, just I'm, a couple of months i'm
1: a few podcasts in now and uh, i think this is this pretty good setup i think it rates 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 at the top of the Top of the pile so far.
0: Well, I'm asking that deliberately because James will be sat in the other room, uh, probably giving you a thumbs up for that. Uh, Listen, Tim, uh, it's a very, very brief introduction because I wanted people to really understand from you the journey that you've been on. To become, and dare I say this now, a young CEO. Very kind. uh, Of an organisation, of a company. Can
1: I call this telecoms? Is that correct if I say telecoms? You can, uh, and then we have to immediately defend that we're not a dinosaur and we're not like the rest. Or we're
0: going to come on to that, aren't we? Because there are some big traditional players in that particular sector. But just before we begin, just tell uh, everyone a little bit uh, about you.
1: Sure. I. I'm, I'm like, I think you've, you've highlighted that now. I'm 39 next month. Um, See what do I mean young? I've been, uh, I've been, I don't feel young. Um, I feel well used at this point, uh, but, but I've been um, running this business for 17, just over 17 years now. Uh, so uh, background wise, um, yep. I, I was born in the UK, but my family moved to Switzerland when, when I was um, very, very young. Uh, lived in Switzerland until I was 12, um, and then my family relocated to, to the southwest. Right. Um, uh, had a real kind of change of environment there where I, I sort of got put into what was at the time a, an all-boys school, um, and um, uh, completed my sort of high school education in the southwest. Uh, managed to uh, get myself into uh, into Oxford University, studied engineering with computer science. Right. Um and after just over three, three and a half years, um, really just I think struggling with with quite a few, quite a few things there where where, where I really just didn't want to complete, and so um, so I, I left university. Um, uh, that was really encouraged by a job I had at the time, right? And uh, and then actually very quickly that led me to saying, well, actually, I think I think what I want to do is. Um, a bit of kind of consultancy start a business um i'd identified some opportunities and that was really the, the starting point for the business journey and then uh yeah and then and then that's massively evolved and and almost in a weird way it's almost been three different businesses over that time um a- and that's evolved over the 17 years to kind of where we where we are now um, okay. which is you know a, just under a 400 person company um pretty well funded um and as you've alluded to um Uh, disrupting a space that's actually really really hard to build new businesses in you know Mm -hmm. infrastructure is traditionally um, a space that requires a ton of investment yeah um, and is usually built on some kernel of a legacy business or a state-owned asset or some other kind of people people sort of (laughs) start with something to build something and, and actually it's really rare to see something entirely new built in this space
0: gotcha i want to come back to that Mm. disruption piece because i think i speak to a lot of ceos at the moment and the thing that they're most worried about is becoming irrelevant so they want to be the disruptor and not the disrupted so if you're coming into the sector as a disruptor we need to talk about that sure but let me backtrack slightly because i remember when you and i chatted it was a couple of weeks ago on the phone i was immediately intrigued as to you your background your motivation um, you are still young, Tim. Let me just tell you, 39. Um, but with that, let me let me go back to university because obviously you were excelling in relation to the academic side of things to get into Oxford University. But when you and I first chatted, you said that you certainly saw a difference between almost intelligence and education. Mm. Was that something that was on your mind then when you were at perhaps one of the most iconic universities in the world?
1: That's a really good question. Um I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. I think, um, I think perhaps I, I had an experience. Um, at, at, it was around A level time. Yeah. Um, I uh, believe it or not. Uh, I mean, doing an engineering degree at Oxford is yeah. actually essentially a maths degree uh, by any other measure or standard. It's yep. not known as being a particularly practical engineering degree compared with somewhere like Imperial College. Um, and and so uh, you know you really have to be strong on maths. And yet at the same time. Uh, maths was was the a level i struggled the most with in in school and i remember that you know i had to go outside of school find a tutor who um who could help me to kind of make sure i got the grades that i needed yeah um and this was you know going outside of what was already a a pretty good private school um to get further you know support in in just one subject and and it you know and i had always kind of been told and, and given the feedback that i was bad at maths um and what this tutor who she had she was a a former cambridge maths professor um very quickly identified within 30 minutes of sitting with her she she said you need to buy this book go away read it i think she even cut our first session short which was annoying because she was like an hour drive away Um, but she'd come highly recommend she said, go buy this book it's the textbook that we use at cambridge yeah read that or or whatever they had used at cambridge i think and and um and see if that works for you and she within 30 minutes realized that the way that i learned and understood things was different to the books that we were using and right. of course you know broadly speaking all education is kind of optimized for the average you know we're teaching large groups of people we can't always personalize the journey and it's the role of the teachers hopefully to do the best as they, they can to sort of personalize so i think i had that experience of then suddenly it so she spotted that straight away as a as a she was a fantastic and intuitive educator i think and 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 pointed me to a resource that would suit my style and I suddenly realized, you know, I'm not bad at maths. Not suddenly, but I, I suddenly was able very quickly able to start grasping things that I've really struggled with. Yes. Um and and drive that performance up and indeed secure the grades and go on to do pretty well. Um, did you learn what was behind that, Tim?
0: Was you know because obviously I, I have a daughter who's heavily neurodiverse. Well, let's be honest, so am I. Uh, and you, you know, did you some way find out that actually the way you learn or the way you deal with information was different
1: for a specific reason? Well, the funny thing is, I sort of knew it already. Yeah. Um, I was a bit odd in that when I think when I was sixteen, well, so when I was seventeen, I qualified as a sailing instructor. And and prior to that, I'd done a lot of. Um, I'd also done a lot of teaching under the supervision of a qualified instructor. There's right. a whole assistant instructor program that the, the RYA has for this. And, yeah. and so I'd actually done quite a bit of teaching at this point uh, myself um, or coaching of a, of a sport. Yeah. And um, and had very quickly figured out that the way different people understood, you know, that this was only going to work if you could quickly figure out what how they wanted to understand it. And then explain it to them in terms that they understand. Like coaching any sport, yeah. you know, you, you understand the output you want. I need you to move in a certain way, or carry out a certain action, or or behave in a certain way. Um, and the inputs you're going to need to create those outputs are going to be different. The outputs are going to be the same from everybody. That's what I'm looking for. But the inputs are going to be different. Otherwise, it would you almost wouldn't need a, an instructor, you know. Otherwise, you could just give them a book. And I think so. I, I kind of in, intuitively did know that at this point, right. But but I perhaps hadn't connected that it applied to academia as well and, and learning actually more generally. I think your your world of understanding or universe of understanding around around education is sort of so structured and rigid as like you think about it in subjects, you think about like history and science and We're quite maths. cookie cutter, aren't we, in this? Country and and rather it? than just this yeah, this holistic sense of of, yeah. of learning and self teaching and so on. So I think I think it that was a that was a process for me to kind of Realise, and and it, and it also empowered me to start to be a bit more stubborn about if I didn't understand something, don't assume I can't do it. Just assume that I need different material. Right. So I certainly learned that that triggered for me a habit which I've maintained to this day, in which I try and coach on as well, which is, you know, if you don't understand it, go go and try something else. And now, less so now, but but typically, if I'm there's something I want to learn, I'll go and you know I used to go to the bookshop or the library take three or four books out on it even ask the librarian what are the four most common books people take out take them all go and sit in the corner give each one 15 20 minutes and see which one speaks to me which one starts to if one of them can just get me a bit of understanding and then i would sort of zero in on that and say okay this is probably the one that that's going to work for me Um,
0: well i'm going to come back to obviously you're now leading an organization with 400 people and i know you have quite strong thoughts in relation to how you lead and the impact that you have uh, as a leader, but also the the impact that the organisation has, and the responsibility as well that you've got for the lived experience that all of those mm. people ha- that have. So forgive me for for jumping around. You know, when we first um, spoke, and it was a couple of weeks ago, you described yourself as an outsider. Yes. Tell me a little bit about what you meant by that.
1: Well, I think um, uh, I think it's something that uh, I've I've had quite a few conversations recently about it, which is an odd one. Yep. Um, the best one of the best ways that this resonated for a group i spoke to recently was the concept of of home um and it was probably only in my 30s that i ever really had the, that that the concept that i think most people would consider to be home and and i'll explain that as you know growing up as a foreigner i went to a, an american international school in, in switzerland you yeah. you you know it's not um and particularly in the 90s um that was a pretty closed society again we're trying to remember sort of pre-internet you know there's there's not, oh, we remember there's those not days a lot days of on. like other m- sort of multi-language content mm. hanging around. It's actually quite difficult, you know, like even just the craving of like my aunt in the UK would would record TV shows and post us the VHS so we could watch, you know, English language TV. It wasn't like jump on YouTube and it's there. Do you know what I mean? So, so you have much these, has changed very quickly. Yeah. So the, the kind of daily friction of being an outsider is there. Yeah. And so, but but I grew up in that and, and you you don't, you almost don't realize that there's an alternative experience. So I think, You just know that that you're not, that you are an outsider. And then, you know, at that time, I then had, as a result, really, an an American accent when I moved to the UK. Moved to part of the UK that was, you know, again, the opposite of sort of diverse. um, Into an all-boys school, which was a new thing for me. School uniform, that was a new thing to me as well. Um, So so you had this sort of um, very non-diverse environment that wasn't super accepting to to um to to people yeah. who were a bit different you know and I wasn't that different um you know I got bullied a lot but I think I think what's interesting about it is that whole experience and living in the southwest you know the whole time I felt like an outsider almost every interaction I'd have just because my accent was different right you kind of you had people kind of be like you're not you're not from around here are you um obviously university it's a different sort of melting pot and it was only sort of 2009 onwards when I moved to London and was able to sort of exist in this much more uh diverse city where it's a real melting pot isn't it yeah then? and and i think at that point you can kind of get lost in the crowd which is kind of i've really enjoyed that and it's actually that's a theme for me it kind of continues is i i kind of love the anonymity sometimes it's it's really i really love this idea that there are times that i can stand up at work and say something and people like really pay attention and listen and and, and it's quite you know, they they see me as someone with with quite a lot of authority, yes. and then I can just sort of get on the tube and disappear, and no one knows who I am, and I could just be a, you know, I, I could you're just Tim, right? I could be a mobile phone salesman. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, I could be anyone. And <laughs> well, I you work in telecoms, but yeah, exactly. So in many ways, yeah. Well, um, is
0: is there that difference between Tim being being Tim Krezek, the CEO, and just
1: Tim? So no, and I think that's. Um, that's one of the things I love about doing podcasts and stuff is, is I, I think, as I said to you, you know, ask me anything. I'm, I'm an open book and I and I really love it. I, I sort of really challenge myself with that, but that's actually a relatively recent development. Right. Um, you know, I think about six years ago or so, I, I kind of challenged myself a bit harder to say I don't want to be wearing a mask at work. I don't want to be a different person. And it kind of coincided with realizing that good leadership means um, means not being invincible. Um okay there are a few other things that come with that you know it would be wrong to sort of make it sound easy it's a lot easier when it's not a small business i'll give you a a concrete example of that um i was going through a divorce for about four years and at the start of that it was a pretty small business and one of the when you say pretty small what are we talking um, at that time 15 20 15 people right okay um and one of the kind of logical consequences of the divorce process was that um, my my ex-wife was, was actually ultimately, uh, you know, and her lawyers were putting the business at risk. There was a scenario in which they could kind of force the sale of the business. Right. And that created this really difficult tension where, you know, I couldn't really talk about that at work, or I felt I couldn't anyway, okay. know, uh, because there w- there was a chance that... You know, the smart people would sit up and go, "Hang on a second, uh, we could lose our jobs as a result of something totally out of our control." Yes. Maybe you know, I've got a mortgage to pay. Maybe I'm not comfortable with that risk. And so this this is a kind of a situation where you're like, you don't maybe have the ability to be totally transparent. Um, and so I, don't get me wrong, it, it, there's a huge amount of privilege that comes with having, in the eyes of a lot of people, yeah. achieved a lot, and sort of being being. Uh it's been a fascinating journey in the last few years of, of being um kind of badged as a success. Uh because actually I don't feel like I'm different or I've done anything differently. But the simply the outcomes are there for people to say under normal circumstances we would say you're a successful person. Yes. And then all of a sudden you can get away with a lot more. You can just be yourself and people go, Oh, that's okay. You know, you can it's a bit like, you know, Lewis Hamilton taking his dog everywhere and they go, Well, we're not dog friendly, but you are Lewis Hamilton
0: You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> Give an inch and take a mile. In in well,
1: it's yeah. It's just this sort of idea that you can you can almost be a little bit more eccentric. Yes. If if society views you as having been successful, and that's good and bad. You don't. I don't sort of feel like I want to abuse it. On the contrary, I almost feel like that's such a gift that it would be wrong to to not use it to its utmost potential and what for me what that means is I should be ruthlessly honest and transparent I don't need to hide bits of myself that people might have judged previously I don't have to be like oh I'll cover this tattoo up because someone might think I'm unprofessional and not take me seriously and not right. sign the deal because actually I, I, I already have a platform that says that's not a problem
0: I know that you're naturally curious and with this desire to be ruthlessly honest where's that coming from Tim
1: well, I think it's 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 this a challenge to myself. It's like a personal development thing. It's um, it was really freeing to sort of say, actually, I don't need to wear a mask at work. I don't need to be a different person. Um, I don't need to necessarily always have the answer. Um, and and to sort of push myself to say, like, am I, um, am I the same person at work that I am at home?
0: What was you the know? catalyst? For, for, forgive me if you interrupt. What was the catalyst for that? Because I've spoken to a couple of CEOs. You're the third, by the way, now, who's, <laughs> who's used the, the reference to a mask. Two independently yeah. said to me, it's time to take the mask off. You're now the third. Yeah. So that's interesting. And, and, and I, I'm trying in my mind to work out why that phrase has suddenly been used by three CEOs. The last two who mentioned it, it was pandemic-driven. Mm. But what do you think was the catalyst for you starting to think like that?
1: Um I think it was a bunch of things coming to head to a head. Um, you know, the the on that sort of uh, personal mental health journey. Um, you know, I had I had a very good friend who was, you know, really trying to encourage me to, to, to have therapy for for a long time, um, because of you know issues in in my marriage and and you know that got particularly bad. I mean, it was at a point where, right. you know, I was I used to avoid going home. It was not a good okay. place to be. It was, you know. A fairly unpleasant environment and and I think um and I and I felt powerless to kind of change it I was really stuck in terms of what to do about it and um and meanwhile feeling like as a leader it was important that no matter what was going on in my personal life what I always showed at work was sort of consistency reliability accountability you know all of that but I'm always here and I am and I am like standard Tim every single day doesn't matter what's going on outside, I, I always deliver this consistency. And as I said a moment ago, you, you sort of have to do that actually in a small business because already, I was always very aware that people that used to work for me had to defend that at every dinner party they went to, half the pubs they walked into, to their partners, to their families, why don't you have a proper job? You know, why are you working for, so it's, it, in the UK, less so now, but certainly a decade ago, working for small companies was is is not generally like entrepreneurialism and, and and working for small businesses is not something that is a um aspirational thing for for society as a whole you know i think in the u.s this is embraced awesome. a lot better you know Can the american dream here? it's getting better but you know the american dream is like high five so like well done dude for you you've got four people working for you and you have your own and you've, all by yourself. you've got your own pool cleaning company and that's cool because you can have a nice house have the freedom yep. you know you own your own business that's kind of the American dream and you don't have to be a multimillionaire, but you've kind of taken control of your own narrative and in the US right. that's seen as like really positive and here certainly like I say a decade ago there was this kind of culture of like why can't you just be like the rest of us you know like fit it was, in yeah and 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 I was always very aware that my employees had the same challenge that, is that, that the
0: outside of though again kicking into Tim
1: maybe I, I, I don't know sort of where it comes from and i think we've got better at it yep. and, and i think you know the kind of the culture of the ceo that's emerged in the last decade yep. is really different the sort of celebrity ceo thing has kind of in some ways helped in many ways it hasn't um you know the the ones unfortunately that shout the loudest tend to be quite narcissistic and and not necessarily you know super considerate but nevertheless it's created you know, it's like that meme of the you know the or the yeah. you know the CEO of X that people say. You know, that's like that. That where's that come from, right? And I, think, I think it's really interesting.
0: Well, a lot of people sometimes think that a CEO he or she must behave in a certain way or have certain attributes, which in many ways prevents people from even trying to yeah. really take that particular part. Yeah, you
1: know, I'm, I'm really introverted, right? And I think um, it's again one of the reasons I get a kick out of doing these podcasts because it pushes me into a space that. You know, I can I can speak well and I can explain myself, but but it, there's also a sense of discomfort, and so I, I quite I quite enjoy that. But you know, introverts actually make great leaders because they're you know probably a little bit uh, more sympathetic and able to empathise with people yeah. and and take alternative points of view and, and be less confrontational and so on. So so you know there are good traits in there, but equally, the introverted CEOs are not necessarily the ones out there shouting about it. You've set me up quite
0: nicely for this question because. As a CEO, you inevitably put yourself into the spotlight, might be uh, on a sector basis. Uh, I know, uh, I think you're chair now, aren't you, of ITP, will come Mm -hmm. up to that. Um, You are the face of the business for the 400 who work for you. And you said, you know, you've been on a number of podcasts now, all of which is a challenge. Why? I mean, in many ways, people look at you and think you're just about to turn 39, still young. And (laughs) and you've made it, you've made a great success, and you've got a company with 400 people. you've done really well w- w- what are you doing what why are you still putting yourself into situations where you might feel uncomfortable you might feel challenged
1: uh, I mean I think the personal growth side is really interesting you know yeah. and, as sort of that to, to the previous kind of question around um, you know what what drove taking the mask off and that you know the difficulties yeah. in in my marriage and you know not wanting to go to not wanting to go to therapy and then kind of turning the corner on that and um, and I, you know, and then going to therapy, then, then, um, you know, ending that relationship, going through a, a kind of a really painful process, and sort of, as I was, in some ways, tearing down some pretty massive structures in my life, and in mm-hmm. other places, you know, there's people talk about sort of setting your ha- setting your life on fire or whatever. But yeah. as I was doing some of those things, and then, but also other housekeeping around that, and sort of maybe taking away, dealing with the things that. Perhaps I couldn't be open about, or was perhaps a bit ashamed of—not maybe ashamed, but just didn't feel like I could be open about. Then you start to realize that what's left is is pretty easy to tackle, and so then you're like, "Well, I'm, it's just easier to be to be transparent." Yeah. So I think, and then and then to your question, really, it's it's then been this drive to say, "Okay, well, I I've, I get this sort of perverse enjoyment out of like putting it all out there because it's quite thought provoking and it challenges me to." Kind of test all these areas in my life and sort of say, well, actually, is that something I'm prepared to talk about? And if I find myself almost like wanting to not talk about it or wanting to hide it, then it's also maybe a bit of a signal to me that maybe this is something I should look at and think about and change. Or, you know, why is that? Why would I not want to share that? It, it really helps me be more sensitive to people, you know.
0: When we first connected, I was keen for you to come onto the show because the focus for us has always been, well, will be human centered leadership. And when we were chatting, you were incredibly open very quickly. And I remember you said to me, listen, you can ask anything you want. In some ways, you just described yourself as an open book. How do you manage, though, the fact that you're a human being and you're going through challenges like Mm -hmm. everyone else in the world, but they are pertinent and highly individual to you? How do you still, though, get up, go to work, and still try and steer a ship, especially when you're running your own small business in a sector that's probably pretty difficult to get on in how do you find that balance between dealing with significant challenges personally but then rolling out of bed and getting in and thinking yeah we're gonna do this
1: um, I I mean that's come in that's come in some cycles actually I yep. think there was a period um, uh, you know I have this this tattoo on my arm which says oh come on let's check there we go which says never stop okay um, and and that's become a little bit of a trademark. And one of you know, there's a couple of reasons why it's why it's there. When did you get that? Uh, so that was probably just under two years ago. Okay. Um, and uh, that partly exists because for me, that's a very important function of how I live, um, and I'll explain why in a moment. Okay. Um, and so yeah, there's a there's a reminder to myself. But actually it's also there because uh, it forces the conversation sometimes I I don't that is one area that I don't always feel super comfortable talking about but I get asked about it and then I have to explain it and and I and and again it's very literally wearing a very difficult topic on my sleeve okay and and it and it it gets people to ask me the question and it forces me to be open about it and to answer it because I I have this sort of real real problem where like i really always feel this overwhelming urge to be honest so if you ask me the question i can't be like "Mm, don't worry about it you know I, i sort of need to get into it and so uh so i think that's that's been that's been a big part of the way i approach meeting my obligations and meeting my work obligations but but honestly the the simple answer to your question is um even at the sort of the darkest points where i maybe only had a company of 15 20 people i felt so accountable to those people and now with almost 400 people i feel mm. so accountable you know in in less than in less than one day an entire lived year of experience happens inside my business right if go it, on is one way to think about it right yeah. you know the equivalent of one person's 365 days a year happens mm. in one day um, and and so you know you get that wrong for one day mm. it's it's huge but the other way i like to think about that imagine imagine the the i I've, I've said this a lot but you know imagine the 10 days a year where you feel pissed off and the 5 days a year where you've got i don't know an upset stomach and maybe the one day a year where you you feel you know depressed or suicidal right then if that's that means that on any given day statistically there are probably you know 10 people in my organization that are pissed off there are five people with a stomach ache and there's one person who's suicidal Um, actually statistically it's way worse than this but and then you sort of go well hang on those those people are all living out the majority of their waking hours in in an environment that I created I feel hugely accountable to that and and then my problems feel frankly insignificant then it's like okay we're gonna go and we're gonna try and look out for them Okay. So that's that's what gets me out of bed, and that's why I keep pushing.
0: I, I want to come back to the tattoo, if I may. <laughs> no, only only to yeah. m- I'll tell you why. I, and I've been very candid about this as well. You know, I ha- my daughter, who is actually coming back from Thailand, nineteen, mm-hmm. had some significant mental health challenges. Mm. The pandemic was was pretty brutal to her. But she is a doodle board when it comes to tattoos. Yeah. But every tattoo has a significant meaning to her. And whilst that drives my wife mad (laughs) in relation to the appearance of yet another tattoo. Yeah. Each one is deeply personal to her in relation to experiences in her life. You kind of alluded to it, but what what really was the driving force for you going out and getting that?
1: Oh, it's so it's it's I'm a pretty literal person, so it's not hard. Right. Um, I. I. End of 2019, yep. uh, had a. I was I was at a really low point. I think 2019, the end, you know, the last six months of 2019, my mental health declined from a, a pretty good place. Actually, um, you could map it so so easily. To um, and bearing in mind, just just for context, so my divorce process started in sort of April May 2017. Okay. So at this point, I'm over two and a half years into a really acrimonious divorce. Um, Made almost entirely made more complicated by the fact that I had a business. Yeah. Um, and you said
0: the business was at risk or potentially at risk.
1: Well, the business was my was my single biggest asset. Yeah. Um. And uh. And so you know that's certainly where where the lawyers wanted to focus their time. And of course, when you have a business that you know you are essentially the majority shareholder in, yeah. uh, there's not a market value for it. So you now are discussing you know what's this asset possibly worth. And and it turns out actually there is not a lot of uk case law on this so um so that was that was problematic um but not only that once you've decided it's worth millions uh how do you realize that value you know i didn't have any savings like it, was, it wasn't like i could sort of buy my way out of this problem so th- so that leads you to this conclusion of like maybe one of the one of the only obvious solutions is you have to sell it in order to liquidate it in order to free up the cash yeah you know and um so so that was kind of one of the challenges but so th- as a backdrop you had this sort of quite difficult process that was yeah, ongoing okay. and I think along with just a lot of other things in my life that weren't you know that were kind of all compounding and that that ultimately culminated in uh, ending another relationship at the at the end of 2019 in a way that that was not not healthy um, but as a result of me getting to a place where um, being blunt I I didn't really i didn't really want to live and i don't mean that in a feeling suicidal but just the um that depression reaching a point where there wasn't um, there was no emotion you know there's, there's a couple of really great um there's a there's a uh, a great webcomic that describes this actually but but this it's so hard to explain now but this absence of of any feeling any reaction any emotion you're just uh, a right, it, it's just completely sort of hollow um, and, and that would, I would go through periods of sort of just really debilitating, so re- genuine, just in an inability to function. Sometimes this would, these episodes would last hours. Sometimes they would yeah, generally hours, you know, like right. it could be one to six hours of literally just being sat on the floor, unable to move. And the cycle that I sort of got into around that time was, um, Uh, you know that I could it took a lot of time in the morning to build myself up and then I could go to work and I could do my job Uh, sorry I'm probably a bit emotional talking about this but but I could do my job Um, and and I really found it hard to go to bed at night um, because I knew that it was a reset that every morning I woke up in this situation where I had to kind of rebuild myself every morning Mm. Uh, and so it was around that time that I kind of my hack for it was I used to grab a sharpie and I used to write on my arm. Oh. I used to write those words on my arm, never stop, and I would see that in the morning, and that would be uh, a motivation right you know it didn't it didn't fix it but it was enough to get you started. It was a reminder that yesterday's me yeah I could suddenly sort of send it leave a leave a leave a message for kind of future me i yeah. suppose um and uh, and that was a really helpful tool and reminder mm. but and this is where i've talked about it before this sort of weird sanitization paradox that difficult period was also here's the paradox it was probably one of the most empowering times i had in the business because i felt invincible the people i worked with knew something was wrong but they also saw an incredible drive at that time to push the business harder than we'd ever pushed before. Right. And and it all stemmed because I would wake up at seven in the morning and it would take me two or three hours yeah. to build myself up to be able to leave the house and go to work. And it was awful every single morning. And uh the cool part was, by the time I arrived at the office, no one knew this, but I knew that the hardest part of my day was over. Right. The hardest thing, no matter what happened, at that time you know, we were dealing with some litigation with a client and all sorts of other things were going on. We had a multi-million pound lawsuit with a customer that wasn't paying and you know, all sorts of stuff. And it just kind of washed over me because pers- partly I had this sort of emotional indifference to stuff that was going on a little bit.
0: Yeah, you spoke about that.
1: But but also because I just knew that the the hardest part, you know, the challenge I'd overcome that morning for mm. me was, was so much bigger than anything else I could encounter that it, it was like an invincibility cloak. And it, it freed me to do things that... I look back on now as like totally mad. Um, you know, we really, really were able to to work hard that, you know, that period. Yeah. And and this went on into twenty twenty. Those episodes I described, they sort of got fewer and fewer and in, in between and, and we're sort of I'm at a point now where it's in a really healthy balance where, you know, I, I just like anyone, I sort of have these moments of feeling a little bit down, but they're You're human. I, exactly. But but actually now I'm able to manage this in a really different way as well and be really accepting about it. And yeah. so um, so actually I'm able to indulge those moments and be thoughtful about them and say, okay, why am I feeling this way? And the answer is often I just am, and that's really good that I can sort of explore it and then realize there is no reason. It just is. Mm. And then just be like, okay, and make a cup of tea and then go to bed.
0: Was there anything or series of things or personal people who helped you start to have less episodes and start to feel stronger and be able to manage this? Because I, I guarantee there are many people listening to this who are thinking, I've been there mm-hmm. or I am there in some way. How did you get out of that cycle or how did you get out of that series of episodes that you described?
1: It was stubbornness. Um, I, I I don't think there were any particular people i had a few people around me that i think were there and, and sort of cared but but i think and you i didn't know or at least probably didn't really understand right um and one of the problems is you don't know how to describe this when it's happening to you mm. and particularly if it's for me the first time this had ever happened to me it's you did you don't really know where to go with that or how to talk about it right um and also you sort of don't care this is the problem is is that you don't even necessarily feel like you want to fix it you just are Um, so that was a challenge Um, and and this is what I mean about sort of in many ways my work saved me because this sort of accountability I felt you know I've talked a bit about when you're a sole founder the buck stops with you like there is a point where you know if there's a piece of work that needs doing or something that has to happen because you've got the client meeting meeting at 9am and everyone's gone tim I've, I've i've stayed as long as i can but i really have to go because it's my yeah. it's my anniversary today and i have to, i've got dinner with my wife whatever and they've 7pm they check out and you're left there in a you know in a dark room on your own having to just fix this because no one else is going to do do it for you right you're on you are no going
0: to care quite as much as you ultimately
1: well n- no one else is accountable to a point any more than you are. So, so you just get to this point where you're like, it. it is an intrinsically lonely endeavor. And I think um, because of that, you know, it It was the accountability I had to my people meant that I had something mm. to get up and do every day. Otherwise, I, I hate to think kind of where I might've ended up, but, but, and it's one of the reasons I talk about it, I think. Um, but, but i think largely yeah it was it was probably the work that saved me because that at least enforced some structure it yep. forced me to go through this weird cycle where i had to pull myself up every day i couldn't just sort of mm. go back to bed and, and 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 ignore it and so um yeah i think uh i think i was just just repeating and i was and i was a little bit on autopilot in some ways but yeah. um it just got better
0: Listen, this is this is an inspiring story and I'm that's why I think the the podcast is such a privilege, because people come and say, Hey, let's take a, a look under the bonnet. <laughs> hood, if we're talking American. And I'm maybe I'm always surprised at just how personal a conversation I have with guests on a regular basis. So it is a privilege. It's also courageous and it's also deeply vulnerable. And I hope that nowadays people see vulnerability from someone who is a senior leader as a huge strength it's not a weakness mm-hmm. and I got taught a lesson and I've mentioned this before by an amazing uh, dr. Veron Rose who was actually in Montenegro who said to me with the challenges that we had been through as a family with my daughter and I've spoken openly about this is that vulnerability is the ability of someone to really deeply understand their own personal needs and then having the courage to ask other people to help with those needs mm-hmm. And in many ways, it sounds like you had to find your own route through that particular cycle with so much going on. And, and thankfully, as you say, you had the strength, the focus and, and the purpose of the people who were part of the organization that drove you day to day. Vobos at the moment is 400 strong, is going great guns, Yes, is doing amazing things in an arena or sector that might, some might think is difficult to disrupt traditional full of the old guard how am i doing tim on on describing. yeah no, keep going. Describe, this is great <laughs> describing this so again tell me why you've picked 17 years ago to build a business in what might or some might think is an unbelievably difficult arena did you just want the fight that you knew you were up against or
1: that would be such a good story <laughs> if that were true <laughs> wouldn't it that I'd, would be, that would just be like way better <laughs> than the truth i don't know but, um... but you weren't picking an easy Root. uh well no but okay so the and and i sort of alluded to the fact that we maybe the business has been through sort of three clear yes. generations almost yeah so I, I can kind of quickly walk you through that and, Please. and so um i i've i've always i say always i think from from some of my early teens i i started taking an interest in um coding and software we have to say coding these days but whatever uh and and um and I and I think uh, that was around the time you know people started wanting to build websites and these sorts of things. Yeah, I have always had this fascination with sort of being useful and being able to get and and a good measure of like being useful is can you get paid for something? You know, that's always that's always was interesting. That's to the admit. acid test. Yeah, as a, as a as a kid, that was like always the sort of interesting thing to me like what can I get paid for and I had all sorts of things whether it was said like teaching sailing and being like there was something very gratifying about saying this is something I can do well enough that people will pay me to to learn right Right. like that's you know through a through a school and and the rest of it so Mm -hmm. it wasn't maybe the totally direct contact with the money that I had you know I had a salary and uh, whatever but um But then, you know, I was, I think everybody now knows the the sort of anecdote, but I had a really lucrative law mowing business when I was 13, 14 years old, Um, you know, and that was... Serial um, entrepreneur. Yeah, but there was so many really valuable lessons I learned from that. And then I got into doing kind of IT support for people locally and and building websites for people, you know, around the age of sort of 16. Um, I then had this sort of weird trading business where i was buying stuff and selling it on online auction sites um particularly back when the online auction commissions were were free right so you know those sites were just getting going and so it created this really interesting arbitrage of you know what you could do and we weren't at that place where like you could order anything for amazon overnight if you recall like that was not no that wasn't there so i you know i'd broken into all these kind of weird things i had this uh i'd I'd figured out um you you may recall and for the listeners who are too young but here in the UK, we you couldn't buy a SIM-free mobile phone in the late '90s. That wasn't how it worked. You went to Carphone Warehouse or Vodafone or wherever, yeah. and you you took out a contract, and with that you got 300 pounds worth of phone bundled in, and yep. and, and that's how it worked altogether. And what I'd figured out was there was this weird arbitrage where there were still there were these independent mobile phone shops, the equivalent of of like Carphone Warehouse but independently owned who could sell you a mobile phone contract and they didn't necessarily pop up in all the big towns but they were there and they had an ability to to do these transactions and when you got under the hood of how those transactions worked what was happening was they could buy sim-free phones so there was no it had become a sort of a norm that you wouldn't buy a sim-free phone and no one wanted to sell you one and no one could sell you one theoretically but actually there was no reason for this right it was just the way that everyone—it sort of was the way that everyone wanted the market to work because right. they wanted consumers to work this way. It increased stickiness. So that's what it gave people. Yeah, and and so, the, but there was—it was this interesting sort of element where, um, an in, what an independent con, uh, mobile phone shop was doing was you would walk in and they would say, "Here's this, you know, Ericsson phone, this Nokia phone," and, uh, and here's your thirty pound a month contract. They would sell a thirty pound a month Vodafone or Orange or three contract they would get um 300 pounds or whatever it was kickback from them for having sold it yeah which was a budget to go towards the phone that they had then held in stock and they would then they would then hand the phone across to you and they would pocket the 300 pounds and that's how the whole transaction worked right so actually the mobile networks were paying these phone shops to acquire the handsets anyway very long way of explaining
0: your natural curiosity kicking in again
1: i think too. and bearing in mind i was like 16 <laughs> And what I figured out was there were a bunch of people out there that wanted the latest phone and the contract terms were sort of three years, one year to three year terms. Right. And the latest phone would come out and everyone wanted it. And then you had to roll your contract and this was kind of a problem, which meant people literally back then had to wait until your contract was done before you could upgrade. Now you can kind of do in-term upgrades and all sorts of stuff. Um, Long story short, I managed to find a mobile phone shop in Bournemouth That was independently held where the guy was willing to sell me sim free phones so he was basically willing to put extra phones on his contract order with nokia or ericsson or whoever he was buying from sim free and i could acquire that stock from him and this was all completely legal it's just that no one really wanted it to work that way but it was fine so i would acquire these sim free phones and then what i would do was sell them on auction sites Um, To people where the market was that the mobile networks hadn't realized, the market was basically bankers in the city who wanted the latest phone as a status symbol. Right. But were obviously in contract and they needed to have the latest phone the week it came out. And I basically then built up this like black book that every time I then stopped using the auction sites, like because, you know, back then as well, I would get mailed a check. No one had any idea they were dealing with a 16-year-old in Devon. Right. You know, I, I would walk down the high street on the weekend with the cheque, cash it in, put it in the bank, and like, once it had cleared, I would go and box the phone up, and then I would go out of school at lunchtime to the post office. This is old school, Tim. Yeah, this it's is proper great. old school, and I would send something right. And then what I got was this black book where every time a new phone came out, I would get a bunch of calls that I would literally take during my lunch break at school. Yeah. Of basically city workers who would be like, "Tim, can it's you get me the phone?" Demand and many years later when I got in touch and when I, I'm doing the maths and it, I'm figuring out you must have been in school when we did these deals like I always thought you were like a legit business in your 30s um, yeah hilarious but anyway so I had this but it was a really interesting way for me to sort kind of explore the market price arbitrage and okay. you know, I made good money just kind of trading phones this way you know and in a fully legal and legitimate way and yeah. I remember several conversations with my dad where he's like are you sure this is legal <laughs> you know um uh and uh, and yeah just really really interesting so anyway that was so i've I've kind of always had that fascination when i set my business up i had been developing software for a very large law firm and i'd been doing and i'd and i'd sort of really zeroed in on software development being this kind of key thing that i i did like all these internships and things i'd done were sort of trying to find where value was and then this job in the law firm taught me the most important lesson of all, which had somehow bypassed me until this point, which was it wasn't what my, what my time was worth, but, but what my work product was worth to someone else. So I would be able to do a project for these guys, for example, that might take me two weeks, but it could be worth over five years a million dollars to the firm. Right. Because of the time it would save. That is true worth. Yeah and so they would look at it and go this is a no-brainer project because we can pay this kid to do it in 2 weeks and we'll we'll save a million dollars over, over your, the over return on investment. Right. And so you start thinking about the value of what you do is, is is what is the value to someone else not what is the cost to me. Right. Um and so when I started the business it was a software business. It was the idea was okay well that's a massive multi-million dollar international law firm what does it look like if we go and do this for like small to medium businesses, companies with 20 employees, who would never normally think of or have an in-house resource to build software, but actually have a lot of the same problems. And- save them time. Yeah, and there's there's actually probably a really palatable ROI, and no one's tapping that market. No one's saying, let's build software for a 20-person company, or at least they weren't then. So there's a real history to you spotting opportunity from an early age. I think more like exploring like market dynamics and trying to understand and always and always wanting to understand how you things might be work. selling
0: yourself slightly short there because there's you get <laughs> am with there's that curiosity piece without a doubt yeah. but you've just given me at least three if not four examples of spotting a gap spotting an opportunity and doing something about it
1: yeah or like seeing something and then and then the curiosity just driving me down the rabbit hole like driving the wedge in deeper and going well actually how does okay and if that and but and and then i think always having this sort of wanting to then sort of price test it like yeah. actually. And if it's true, well then the evidence will be that there's a, there's margin in it, there's profit. Not, not because it was pursuit of cash, mm. but just because it, that was a way to, you know, I've never been money motivated. It's, it's, it's always been about money being the the proof point that, that your, that your theory is correct.
0: What's it like to have gone then? Let's, and if I, I'm now summarizing some ways from the startup and the, challenges of a startup and to be laden with debt like most startups to actually now to being in a position where you're as you say about to turn 39 400 strong company you're successful Mm. does it feel as if you've made it or does it feel as if you're still on a journey to somewhere else or something else what's next tim
1: Uh, well well, what's next is is you know we've got we've got a huge amount of work to do to yeah. um to kind of continue to prove out a lot of the, the the kind of assumptions that feed our business plan today which is you know that that there's a huge amount of disruption to hit hit the sector we work in and um and to prove out as well that, that our, our fundamentally like different approach actually works and again that will come from building a business that is worth a million pounds, right? That that will be the validation point. You know, again, we're back to the money is the validation. When yeah. when the market says that bil- that business is worth a billion, then you know, um, you know, then then you, then you kind of have that that proof point. Um, so much to do still. Oh, absolutely. Um, but we will do it, and that's the really cool part: is sitting there and going, "Yeah, I can see a path to that." This isn't um, this is not a sort of an exploration so much as as just as just a, a clear journey. That, that we're on but I think uh, my reflection on this sort of success thing is really interesting because I, I'm very uncomfortable with the label of successful right like that's not something that sits well with me I never really loved the label of entrepreneur either because it always feels to me like something yeah. other than me Um, but I'm sort of coming to terms with that I guess that's what I am but, but I think what's interesting to me about the success thing there was a moment in 2020 where as part of raising we raised um just over sort of two hundred and fifty to three hundred million pounds, depending on how you look at it—a substantial amount of money to yeah. grow the business based on all the work we'd done—and as, and as part of that, um, you know, we effectively sold the business to our investors, um, and that was the first time in my journey, fifteen years in, that I actually got a significant amount of cash off the table, yeah. um, and that was. Very helpful. It certainly took a lot of stress away. It meant that I went from a, being in a position of you know net debt and no assets, no home. You know the most expensive thing I had was was a relatively cheap car at that point. It was right. like My most expensive asset. Um, you know I'd rented my whole life, and I'd and I'd taken a lot of judgment from kind of people who, you know, like to sit around at dinner parties talking about their mortgages, of like, oh, you don't own your home, and you're you know you're 35. You know it's. Well, there's the doing things differently piece again yeah but it's um and it's it's a bit uncomfortable because you do get that judgment i would go on dates with people who would not want a second date because they i didn't own a home and they didn't and they didn't have the imagination to look now at look it, you at you, tim <laughs> yeah and it's and and in many ways it was a great filter because if that was a if that was a criterion yeah. for you we definitely weren't going to be a good match no, but so not. i was i used to sort of quite brazenly be like nope i rent <laughs> and 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 they'd sort of be like oh and then they'd leave you know and and I thought that was, you know, that was um that was really kind of fun actually. But but anyway, the point point was like uh I went from that to then and and we did this fundraise during COVID, so it was fascinating because at one o'clock in the morning on the Saturday, you know, the deal had supposed to be closed at sort of three PM on Friday and then six PM and then the lawyers had to go and change a few things. And so we were sitting around in my what tiny rented studio apartment in Moorgate at the time, uh, me and my witnesses. Um Waiting to to, to docu sign this thing under you know under a lockdown conditions right and uh, and in the space of you know a few mouse clicks I go from being a net debtor to society arguably right like on paper yeah uh, to being a millionaire right and and the funny thing is you feel exactly the same and the way I reflect still the
0: same person right yeah
1: <laughs> exactly and and the thing is it doesn't change clearly. Anything I'd done in the previous 15 years was exactly the same. I can't change history, right? But the way in which everybody around you views those 15 years, the perspective instantly changes. It's like someone's gone and colored it in. Validation. And that validation, which is not anything to do with me or how I feel about it or the actions I took, and I was there, I lived it, you know, I am the the log of what happened. Um, but the perspective of that is is entirely changed gotcha. and i always found that or i have found that to be a really interesting sort of study in human nature is that the way people it um case study. the way people respond to me and treat me and the, the way in which they sort of yeah. now maybe listen to what i have to say whereas I would say what do you know you know and i and i'm sort of fascinated by it because i don't particularly say anything differently yeah um you know it's it's exactly the same stuff um it's just now people go well actually hang on a second maybe there is a
0: societal case study i think here somewhere yeah in in, in this story it's Uh, fascinating i I mean i'm really grateful for you having such a candid conversation my kind of final question is with all of the experiences that you've gone through and, and the journey that you've just described as well from a business point of view what do you think has been the most important leadership lesson for you something that you would want to share it's almost an unfair question, isn't it? It really is. But is there is there something almost that's just front of mind for you, Tim?
1: Um, I think there's probably a few things, but um, but for me, that that sort of authenticity piece is is really really important. You know, I, I genuinely feel like a lot of what I do is is to um, try and make an impact for the people we have. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll probably get told off for saying this, but you know, I uh, building a massive fiber network it's not particularly uh, interesting to most people Um, if we didn't do it somebody else probably would eventually Mm. Um, you know these these things will emerge I think where we have a more interesting opportunity is in the thousands of lives that we will impact one way or another and I think to me that is from a connectivity piece or no from just from a business piece I think we do things super differently Um, You know we do put a huge bias on intelligence versus education to kind of bring that all the way back you know to try and hire people who have the potential but are often poorly educated or the systems failed them or whatever and and Mm -hmm. we sort of work with that raw material and and then the lessons we teach them about management and how to treat people and how we behave as a business and and the safety and and the sort of things we give them bear in mind that they'll go on and work another forty years in other jobs and they'll take the lessons they learned here when they're managing teams, the way that they manage those teams will be influenced. They'll be influenced by what by what they've learned at Vorboss. And I think I find that is incredibly powerful and also incredibly daunting. And so I think I think, you know, that's probably when I say that authenticity piece, it's that sort of extremely humbling thing of approaching the job and saying, Mm. you know, it's that sort of great power, great responsibility thing of of wanting to do that in an incredibly responsible and accountable way to say we can be really proud of what we did and the impact we created, the human impact was really positive.
0: Well, they can check out the company site on vorbos.com, I believe. Yes. Um, and it's on the screens behind us. Listen, it's been amazing for you to come in and have a conversation. I have a feeling that you and I probably need to have another conversation uh, as well. So let's, uh, let's get this one out there. But I also think there was so much rich content than it may well be that we need to meet again, Tim, and dig down into I'd love that. some of these. So I'm really grateful for you coming on the show and taking the time to chat. Many thanks. Thanks, Adam. Cheers. Join us again next week for more curiosity and insight with the Leadership Enigma. We'd love to hear your comments on today's show as well as suggestions for future topics and guests. Get in touch with me on LinkedIn or visit us at www.leadersenigma.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on all your major podcast platforms and on our dedicated YouTube channel. Thanks again for joining the community.